Part 7 of A Brief History of the Order of Dionysus and Paul by Alan Armstrong. The order exists within the Holy Celtic Church. The structure of the community, like that of many religious orders, is based upon degrees of commitment and ability. The order is overseen by priors who each run their own chapter. The head of the order is the prior general, currently Brother Marcus. Until the closure of the Wick Chapel in 2016, the community met in person twice weekly. This practice has changed, for reasons already explained, to meeting online on a monthly basis using video conferencing technology, by which I mean Zoom. Because of the changes to the way the order meets, the fellowship has grown to become more significant and now meets weekly on Zoom. It began, essentially, as a preparatory school for those beginning to tread the path, but it is now transforming into something else, the shape of which is not yet clear. The order no longer meets in one place, but gathers in different oratories for a weekly Eucharist, and comes together for a monthly Eucharist and teaching in the chapel of St. Raphael in Swindon. For many years, they all lived in the same area of Bristol, and saw each other often daily, but now they are separated by space and time. Nevertheless, the cohesion of the community remains strong and vibrant in spite of the distances that separate them. For this gift, we must give thanks to the formulary, the vow and the rule, which joins the members of the order in equitable bonds of spiritual and communal fraternity. Every member, regardless of status, being subject to the same set of standards, and all members being equally bound to act in accordance with them. The formulary sets out the basic principles of communal activity within the order, defining the scope and parameters of engagement for every member. None are exempt. The first requirement is that the members of the order follow the laws of God in nature, commending all not to be guided by extremes but to emulate our exemplar, the Lord Jesus Christ, working with all that is wholesome in human nature so that the essential qualities of humanity may be transformed into a new habitus. The head of the order is the prior general, who is both the spiritual and executive head of the order and its chapters. The general administration of the order is overseen by a chapter of senior members, Activities and projects undertaken within the order are divided into three principal roles the prior, the coordinator, and the operator. Individual members may simultaneously act as coordinator and an operator. For instance, any member, junior or otherwise, may be requested to organize a seminar. That member then takes the role of coordinator for that undertaking all other members involved answering to that coordinator, regardless of rank or position. On these terms, harmony is maintained within the order. Every member is expected to stay within the scope of their own activities, thus eliminating cross-currents in the energy of the community. In the pursuit of study, all disciplines must be self-motivated, as the order functions more like a college than a nursery school. 
Guidance and encouragement is always available from senior members, but the motivation must be self-driven and must come from within. Furthermore, no member may act as a judge or critic of another member. Everyone comes to labour in this field in a state of imperfection and must be allowed the room to grow and evolve without fear of derision, ridicule or harsh criticism, for who understands the heart of another? When an irresolvable conflict arises between members, those involved in the conflict are each encouraged to appoint a member of the order as their representative to negotiate on their behalf until a mutually accepted settlement is reached. Many of the order's day-to-day activities are orientated towards teaching its members the rudiments of prayer and meditation and developing the spiritual philosophy and science as outlined in the order curriculum. This is done with the expectation that members will use the material to develop an understanding of the first Adam and its habitus. Also, prayer has been a central feature of the spiritual life from the earliest times and was frequently emphasised by the early church fathers. So it is with the order of Dionysus and Paul, in which regularly engaging in prayer is a fundamental part of daily life. Consequently, through the day, specific times are set aside for prayer so that the soul may recollect itself and persevere in its main purpose, spiritual growth and transformation, and to pray for others, especially the sick and those who find themselves in troubled times. For the order, dedicating a life to the well-being of others is not only a means of engaging in the work set out by our Lord, who commanded his disciples thus, and I quote, would go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. End quote from Matthew 10, 6-8. It is also a means of spiritualizing that life. In part, this is because the mind is not a vacuum, and if left to its own devices, it will inevitably occupy itself with thoughts, feelings and images generated by the senses. A never-ending procession of thought forms, defining and dictating mood and behaviour. And for what purpose? It has long been known that prayer, especially for others, is an effective way of harnessing the same faculties towards more positive and spiritual ends. Consequently, those who dedicate a part of their life to serving others, especially those in need, also engage in the work of habitus modification, in short, spiritual transformation. The daily life of the order is based upon three offices to be performed daily by individual members. The morning office is ideally performed upon rising after ablutions, and establishes a unique theme and tone for that day. The midday office is a very short office and reinforces the primary theme established in the morning office. And the evening office, performed just before retiring, provides time for members to reflect upon personal behaviour and to consider possible modifications and responses. These daily offices are primarily designed for individual use, but may be shared and used as group devotions. 
They may also be modified and extended and supplemented with different prayers and readings focused upon the healing and well-being of others, all of which constitute steps on the path. The path is a term that is full of meaning. It is used to describe the movement from the habitus of the first atom to the second atom. It is frequently described as being long, narrow, thorny and difficult, because the change from one habitus to another is accepted as being complex and tricky, difficult but not impossible. The primitive church saw the primary work on the path as changes the catechumen should make in preparation for baptism. These changes were perceived to be on three levels. 1. Personal and private. 2. Societal and public. 3. Spiritual and transcendent. The first is concerned with the attitudes and dispositions of the inner being. The second with our behaviour in society and the third with our relationship with God. All of which could be described as functioning under the first Adam's reactive disposition of I like, I don't like. The objective of the primitive church was to transform this lower reactive carnal nature of humanity into the higher selfless spiritual nature to which the first and second Adam have been applied. The term that best serves the mindset and behavioural reflexes of both is habitus, which means those aspects of culture that are expressed in the daily practices of individuals and groups, including learned habits, bodily skills, styles, tastes and other non-discursive knowledge. In short, habitus represents the way group culture and personal history shapes the body and mind of the individual and as a consequence shapes society. The core focus of the primitive church was to modify the behavioural reflexes of the first Adam, to accommodate a new habitus that was conducive to a new society. This required a new context defined by the teachings of Jesus Christ that are described in the New Testament. The primary focus was threefold. Firstly, overcoming selfishness and greed through sharing resources in common. Secondly, overcoming anger and aggression through the practice of non-violence. And thirdly, overcoming lust and the desire for vicarious pleasure through acknowledging that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. These three dispositions were fused into a new habitus, the second Adam, through prayer, meditation and fasting. Essentially, there is nothing new in this approach. A tradition of studying the scriptures with this kind of thing in mind had evolved at least from the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century BC, and possibly long before, each succeeding generation seeking to find meaning in the sacred texts. What was different was the Christian motivation. The primitive church adopted what had gone before and carefully mined the scriptures to facilitate the transformation of the habitus of the first Adam, and this was employed with great effect, especially in preparing catechumens for baptism, an approach that would often take three or more years to accomplish. In effect, a roadmap or guidebook was created that enabled the catechumen to change from one habitus to another. The personal life of the catechumen 
was spent following this guide, reflecting upon their behavior in the context of the scriptural readings, by which I mean the practice of meditation, and in seeking divine assistance through prayer to enable them to make the necessary changes. In prayer we commune with God, and in doing so regularly we beat an uncommon path that leads us towards the renewal of our being. However, a great deal of internal wrestling takes place before our prayer life is established, wherein the catechumen learns that winning a battle does not mean winning the war. Nevertheless, with persistence, victory will be achieved, as history clearly demonstrates. With this in mind, there follows a compilation of readings that have been used over the centuries as fertile themes for our meditations, thereby assisting aspirants along the path. The following compilation is attributed to St. Cyprian, who died in 258. He was for much of his life a pagan of rhetorician before converting to Christianity in 246. He was consecrated Bishop of Carthage, having acquired a profound knowledge of the scriptures as well as of the writings of Tertullian. The following text is from Ad Quirinum, one of the three books he wrote addressed to his son. Cyprian lived in turbulent times. The Decian persecution had began in the autumn of 249, and he was forced to flee, but continued his mission by letter. In 252, the plague broke out in Carthage, for which the Christians were blamed. Furthermore, the schism of Novation emerged, which took up a great deal of Cyprian's time. The Novation controversy was shortened by the persecution of Christians, initiated by the Emperor Valerian, during which Cyprian was captured and martyred in Carthage on the 14th of September, 258. The following quotations are from the Treatise of St. Cyprian of Carthage, translated by Robert Wallace and published by First Rate Publishers, Wisconsin. The format consists of a precept followed by scriptural references that support the precepts and provide meditations upon their nature and use. The first precept concerns the benefits of good works and mercy. The scriptural reference is Isaiah 58 verses 1 to 9, which states, Loose every knot of unrighteousness. Let go of the choking of impotent engagements. Send away the harassed into rest and scatter every unrighteous contract. Break your bread to the hungry and bring the houseless poor into your dwelling. If you see the naked, clothe him and despise not them of your own seed in your house. Then shall your seasonable light break forth and your garments shall quickly arise, and righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of God shall surround you. Then you shall cry out, and God shall hear you, and while you are yet speaking, he shall say, Here I am. The next precept is that charity and brotherly affection are to be steadfastly practised. The reference Cyprian gives is to Malachi chapter 2 verse 10, where it states, Has not one God created us? Is there not one Father of us all? Of this same thing, according to John, this is my commandment, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Greater love than this has no man, that one should lay down his life for his friends. 
And so the format follows. With the precept, we must boast in nothing, for nothing is our own, followed by the scriptural reference to the Gospel of John. Chapter 3, verse 27. No one can receive anything except it were given to him from heaven. Also, in the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 7, For what have you that you have not received? But if you have received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The following precept asserts that humility and quietness are to be maintained in all things, and the scriptural reference that is given in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, Thus says the Lord God, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is the stool of my feet. What seat will you build for me, or what is the place for my rest? For all those things has my hand made, and all those things are mine. And upon whom else will I look, except upon the lowly and quiet man, and him that trembles at my words? The following precept maintains that anger must be overcome, and it is supported by the following references. In Proverbs 16.32, Better is a patient man than a strong man, for he who restrains his anger is better than he who takes a city. And also in the same place, the imprudent man declares his anger on the same day, but the crafty man hides away his dishonour. Of this same thing to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 26, Be angry and sin not, let not the sun set upon your wrath. The next precept is concerned with being mindful of the well-being of the community, that brethren ought to support one another. Its reference is to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Each one, having others in consideration, lest you should also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so you shall fulfil the law of Christ. The following precept is concerned with attentiveness, meaning upon what do we place our attention. The precept reads that he who has attained to trust, having put off the former man, ought to regard only celestial and spiritual things, and to give no heed to the world which he has already renounced. The reference is to Isaiah chapter 55 verse 6, which states, Seek the Lord, and when you have found him, call upon him. But when he has come near unto you, let the wicked forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him be turned unto the Lord, and he shall obtain mercy, because he will plentifully pardon your sins. This next precept is concerned with judgment and prejudice, and states that we must not rashly judge one another. Its reference is to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, that you be not judged. Condemn not, that you be not condemned. In Romans 14:4, Who are you that judge another man's servant? To his own master he will stand or fall. The next precept is concerned with treating others with respect. It states that evil is not to be returned for evil and is supported by the following references. In Romans chapter 12, 
verses 17 to 21, render to no man evil for evil. Also, in Revelations chapter 22, verses 11 to 12, And he said unto me, Seal not the words of the prophecy of this book, because now the time is at hand. And let those who persist in hunting hunt, and let him who is filthy be filthy still, and let the righteous do still more righteousness, and in like manner let him that is holy do still more holiness. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to his deeds. The following precept is concerned with our willingness to forgive, and it states that when you have received a wrong, we must remit and forgive it. As it is said in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors. Also, according to Mark chapter 11, verse 25, if you have warned against anyone, that also your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your sins. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you your sins. Also, in the same place, in what measure you meet, in that shall it be measured to you again. The next precept is concerned with discretion and developing the ability to go through life quietly. It states that we must not labour noisily nor boastfully and references the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 6, verse 3, which reads as follows. Let not your left hand know what your right hand does that your arms may be in secret, and your Father, which sees in secret, shall render to you. The following precept is concerned with us learning discretion in our speech, stating that we must not speak foolishly or offensively, and references Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 4, which states, Foolish speaking and scurrility, which are not fitting for the occasion, let them not be even named among you. The following precept concerns usury, which is, in effect, extortionate money lending, or lending money at unreasonable rates. It states in no uncertain terms that we must not take usury, and references the 13th Psalm, which follows, He that has not given his money upon usury, and has not received gifts concerning the innocent, he who does these things shall not be moved for ever. Also, in Ezekiel 22.30, But the man who will be righteous shall not oppress a man and shall return the pledge of the debtor and shall not commit rapine and shall give his bread to the hungry and shall cover the naked and shall not give his money for usury. Also, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19, you shall not lend to your brother with usury of money and with usury of victuals. This next precept is concerned with the way we think about others. It advocates that even our enemies must be loved and references the gospel according to Luke chapter 6 verse 32, which states, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? or even sinners love those who love them. Also, according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 44, Love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven, who makes his Son to rise upon the good and the evil, 
and give rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. The following precept concerns the esoteric aspects of life, which declares that the secrets of God cannot be seen through, and therefore that our faith ought to be simple, and references the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 12, which declares, We see now through the glass in an enigma, but then with face to face. Now I know partly, but then I shall know even as I also am known. Also, in the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1, and in simplicity of heart seek him. Also, in Philippians, chapter 2, verses 4, seek not things higher than yourself. Also, in Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 16, be not excessively righteous, and do not reason more than is required. The following precept asserts that we must not please men but God, referencing the 52nd Psalm, which declares that they that please men are confounded, because God has made them nothing. Also, in Paul to the Galatians, chapter 1, verse 10, If I wish to please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. This next precept declares that no one should be made sad by death, since in living is labour and peril, in dying peace and the certainty of the resurrection, and references the first epistle to Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 36, which states, You fool, that which you sow is not quickened except it hath first died. And again, stars differ from star in glory, so also the resurrection. The body is sown in corruption. It rises without corruption. It is sown in ignominy. It rises again in glory. It is sown in weakness. It rises again in power. It is sown an animal body. It rises again a spiritual body. This next precept is concerned with our control of appetite, declaring that too great a lust for food is not to be desired, referencing the following. The Epistle to the Romans, chapter 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. In the Gospel according to John, chapter 4, verse 32, I have meat which you know not of. My meat is that that I should do the will of he who sent me, and should finish his work. The following precept is concerned with avarice, declaring that the lust of possessing and money are not to be sought for, and references the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 6, verse 36. For what does it profit a man to make a gain of the whole world, but that he should lose himself? In the first epistle to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 7, we brought nothing into this world, but neither can we take anything away. Therefore, Having maintenance and clothing, let us with these be content. And again, for the root of all evils is covetousness, which some, coveting, have made shipwreck from the faith, and have plunged themselves in many sorrows. This next precept is concerned with the life and death of the soul, and asks the question, What are those carnal things which beget death, and what are the spiritual things which lead to life? The response 
is a reference to Paul to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 7, which states, The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for they are contrary, the one to the other, that you cannot do even those things which you wish, but the deeds of the flesh are manifest, which are adulteries, fornications, impurities, filthiness, idolatries, sorceries, murders, hatreds, strife, emulations, animosities, provocations, dissensions, heresies, envying, drunkenness, reveling, and such like. Respect to which I declare that they who do such things shall not possess the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is charity, joy, peace, magnanimity, goodness, faith, gentleness, continence, chastity. For they who are Christ's have crucified their flesh with its vices and lusts. The following precept declares that everyone is tempted so much as he is able to bear and references the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 13, where it states, No temptation shall take you except such as human. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. This next precept is concerned with spiritual values rather than earthly values and asserts that the grace of God ought to be without price. It references the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, verse 20, where it is written, Your money be in perdition with yourself, because you have thought that the grace of God is possessed by money. And in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 10, verse 8, freely you have received, freely give. The following precept is concerned with gracefully accepting criticism, declaring that all good men ought willingly to hear rebuke and references Proverbs 9, verse 7, which states, He who reproves a wicked man shall be hated by him. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. This next precept is concerned with the discipline of controlling your tongue, asserting that we must abstain from much speaking, and references Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, where it is written, Out of much speaking, you shall not escape sin, but sparing your lips you shall be wise. The following precept is concerned with acceptance of fate, declaring that when a wrong is received, patience is to be maintained and vengeance to be left to the Lord, referencing Romans chapter 12, verses 19, where it is written, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This next precept is concerned with loving your neighbour, stating that the sick are to be visited and cared for, referencing Ecclesiasticus chapter 7, verses 35, which asserts the sick are to be visited. In Ecclesiasticus chapter 7, verse 35, Be not slack to visit the sick man, for from these things you shall be strengthened in love. These are but a few of the guidelines established by St. Cyprian as meditations for those 
who follow the Christian path of spiritual development and self-knowledge. Ancient they may be, but they are as relevant today as they were nearly 2,000 years ago. And here we must draw to a close part 7 of a brief history of the order of Dionysus and Paul. Thank you.